morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Oh, man, that's so fun. Like the return. I don't, nobody tells me good morning most days. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. All right, so let's get, let's get to it. Um, this Sunday, we are taking a pause um, between our sermon series here at Revolution in order to revisit a specific set of parables that are shared by Jesus and recorded in the gospel of, uh, uh, in the gospel accounts of his life. And if you're new here to Revolution, um, I'd like to take just a moment to kind of explain what we're up to with a week like this week. So each year at our church, we choose a single theme to guide our teaching time every week for the, for the 52 messages of the year. In the past, we focused on church a few years ago. We focused on mission um, two years ago. And then last year, we focused on hope, specifically our permission to hope. And this year, our theme for the year is uncertainty uncertainty. And if you've been visiting with us these past few Sundays, that's why uh, we chose to look at the life of Samuel versus any other story in the Old Testament for that last series, because Samuel is a figure who has to live and make decisions at a time when the nation that he serves is profoundly unsure about the steps that are in front of them. Our big point for the year, which we hope all of our teaching and all of our series for the year helps to flesh out is this. It's that uncertainty isn't something to fear. Uncertainty isn't something to fear because it gives us a chance to shift our focus from what we know to who we trust. And that, that is a crucial step for everybody's faith, to shift from what you know to who you trust. But working through different topics and books of the Bible week after week in search of the same theme for 52 weeks in a row can get kind of intense at times. And so we've also, over the last few years, developed this rhythm in our teaching, which we call, like, because I'm an English teacher and I use really unhelpful turns of phrase all the time, we call them interlude weeks and a musician. That's what happens when an English teacher and a musician is in charge of naming things. You get interlude weeks. So we had these interlude weeks where we take a pause in between the bigger chapters in our year in order to revisit a part of scripture that we think actually works better to study as something broken up into pieces instead of in one big chunk. So last year, we looked at Psalms in our interlude weeks throughout the year. And this year, we're looking at the parables of Jesus in these interlude weeks. So that is what we're up to this morning. We're looking once again at a specific instance of Jesus's teaching before we move ahead next week to a new topic. And that is a lot to explain on to get the start. Last week, I told a joke about puppets. This week, you got like a whole lecture about like our sermon teaching structure. But anyways, if that was as clear as mud, here's the takeaway. Here's the big point that I want you to walk away with. The point is we want your time with this church to build something up in you. We want your time with this church to build something up in you. We want you, we want you to, to not just know in your head and to come in and like learn random things every week, but to begin to experience in your whole being how Christian faith actually holds together as something solid and reliable. Because it's the wholeness of Christian faith, not just like little moments, not like just little moral lessons or weekly stories. It's the wholeness of Christian faith, which can bring wholeness into our lives. And so we want to focus on that with, with our time together every week. So what 
parables are we looking at today? If that's the goal, what parables? Well, this morning, we're going to look at the parable of the watchful servants. The watchful servants. And I'd like to begin with a question. I warned at least one of you about this question earlier. The question is, do you know or remember what juxtaposition means? Any volunteers? What is juxtaposition? I have eighth grade and a seventh grader who I know learned it. Just that way. Yeah, what you got? Yeah, like putting a thing next to something else for the purpose of drawing some kind of comparison, right? So illuminate something. All right, that's good. So when we take these two things that are strikingly different and we slam them up next to each other. Okay, question two is why do we ever do it? Why do we do it? That's harder to answer, right? Like to learn something, but how do you learn something by putting two things that aren't connected next to each other? Let's look at a quick and a famous example that I think might help get us on track for the morning. It, I'm actually going to read it. It goes like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. And that is the opening lines of what novel? Good. Some of you had terrible English teachers. You're totally right. It's Tale of Two Cities. I say terrible because I'm going to give you a personal confection. I hate Charles Dickens. I hate him so much. I think he is a paid-by-the-word hack, and I just think his books are trash. So, <laughs> hot takes, but that's what you're here for. So, but I'll admit, I'll admit, this opening, that opening to Tale of Two Cities is pretty good. But what's the point? What's the point? How can any time be both? I mean, it's poetic, right? But what's, what does it mean? How can a time be the best and the worst? How can a time be wise and foolish or light and dark at the same time? Well, I'll offer a hypothesis that I think gets us somewhere. I think Dickens's point is that the time he is actually writing about is more than one or the other of the things, right? It's more than just good or bad. He's saying that the time that he's writing about is complex in ways which resist being oversimplified into just light or dark or foolishness or wisdom. And I bring this up because the parable this morning, which isn't all that confusing in itself, is juxtaposed with another idea in this part of scripture that seems to push in the opposite direction from the direction the parable is pushing. And so our task this morning is, is to work out not only what the parable says, but what Jesus might be up to by sharing this particular parable at this moment in the way that he does it. So we're going to get to the parable first, and then we'll get to the, the juxtaposing. It comes from Luke 12, and it goes like this. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. All right, to set the context, at this moment, Jesus is talking to his own disciples here. And he's doing this in what we might think of as kind of the second phase of his public ministry, which occurs, the second phase occurs after he has started to send his disciples out in these groups of two away from him to teach and to heal townspeople kind of in the north of Judea, like in the countryside. So at least at first, I think it is reasonable to think that this parable feels a bit like a management parable, right? He's saying that now that the disciples have actual jobs to do versus just following him around, and those jobs take them away from their boss, so he's not with them all the time, they need to be watchful, and they need to be ready for their boss to return at any given moment. Have you ever received a lesson like this? I've been reading lately about the management crisis that our new work from home era is creating. I don't know if you've been like catching these CNN articles or whatever, but that it's creating this tension in a lot of companies because there's nobody in the offices. And if there's nobody in the office, there's nobody for managers to supervise, which makes people think that like it's possible managers might not be useful. They might not be worth the salaries they, they get. But anyways, so that's not, that's a problem. We got to prove how management is valuable. And so they've been inventing all of these new ways in order to like monitor people and, and like keep an eye on people while they're working from home with all these new technologies you put in your computer. Some of you probably live exactly this life where like somebody's checking your, your mouse clicks per hour or whatever, I don't know. Anyways, what's happening of course is we're inventing all these ways of trying to make sure people are, are doing their work. Like two things seem to be happening. Number one, people are starting to feel like they're being spied on because they are, right? And that's weird. And you might argue like, yes, but I was spying on you at the office. But when you say it out loud, it doesn't help. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't feel better. And then the second thing is like we're getting data, right? And the data is showing that this actually is decreasing people's effectiveness at work because of something very specific, because it turns out that feeling of being watched all the time doesn't make us more productive. What it does is it makes us better at performing being productive. And so we get really good at inventing all kinds of tasks to do that look from the outside like work, but are in fact useless to our ability to do our real jobs. And some of you are like, amen. <laughs> like, that is my life. There's so many checklists in my life that I make just to check, like, all morning. Anyways, so... One wonders then, one wonders, if Jesus anticipates this, because in this parable, instead of like only bringing, even though there's like some pretty dark stuff at the end that's cutting your servants up, and we'll get to that, but like at the beginning, he starts by offering a pretty big reward, right? He says, he's not, first of all, he's not just away on business, right? The master in the story is actually at a wedding, which it seems meaningful. It's like not the normal thing. And when he returns, he doesn't just say, like, good job to the servants who waited up for him. He changes, right? He changes from his wedding clothes right away into the clothes of a servant. And then he serves his servants as soon as he gets back from his trip. Now, that's like a bigger reward, I would argue, than like a pizza party or like casual Fridays or whatever you guys do. And so attentiveness and steadfastness for the workers in the story is being rewarded 
And it's being rewarded in this way, right? By being treated as equals. By being treated as equals with the manager. But what's the consequence if you don't do it for following, falling asleep on the job, right? Well, it's a lot worse than just being reprimanded or getting something in your file. Here, like we said, the master says it's going to cut them into pieces and then exile them from the kingdom to the land of unbelievers. I would argue that if you're freaked out about the cutting to pieces, that the second part kind of nullifies and makes us think that might not be like a literal cutting to pieces. Because I don't know the point of like cutting a person into pieces and then being like, those have to get out of here. That's going to suck for them. They're going to learn their lesson. If they were just pieces, they might still mess up. But like, we got to kick it out. So that's silly. Anyways, the point though is however you parse it, like the cost of your inattentiveness, the cost of your inattentiveness is extremely high. But on the surface, or so, not but, so on the surface, what can we take then from this first part of Jesus's juxtaposition? What does the parable say? Well, the disciples, it turns out, are wondering the same thing because they're like listening and usually talks in parables to crowds. And then they, he sometimes will give him them like the inside scoop later, like what it all meant. But there's no crowd this time. So they're kind of like, are you cutting us up? And then, so Peter even says in verse 41, he says like, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everybody? <laughs> Which is like a great moment from Peter. He'd like to know the fine print before he signs up, which I respect. But Jesus doesn't answer him plainly. Instead, he says this in verse 48. He says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. My sense of the challenge then is this, right? Like we're just taking the parable on its own. We are called. We are called to be faithful and steadfast in the work that we've been given to do. Faithful and steadfast. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that we don't try to perform productivity with a bunch of checklists. We don't seek out impressive feats or kind of one-off events of service. We don't spend our energy trying to wow either Jesus or wow other Christians with how much good we can do when they're paying attention to us, right? We don't want to perform Christian productivity. But the challenge is, like, if we take away the big showy things that can draw attention, like, what's left to us? What are we doing? What is our job as Christians? And the answer to that question has two parts, which we know, and they're pretty direct. We're called as Christians to, one, love God, and to, two, love our neighbors. And so if we put all these pieces together, we're called to do those things, to love our God, to love our neighbors, in ways that are steady and faithful, steady and faithful. How do you do that in our, as we love God? Well, we love God by seeking to know him, and by investing in our time with him. And doing that steadily then would mean pursuing our faith beyond weekly church services, right? Or beyond picking up a new Christian book like once a quarter from a bookstore so that you can put it on your nightstand and like feel holy. Like you don't want to just do those incidental things, it would mean spending time daily, right? In prayer, spending time daily in scripture. I would argue it would mean spending time intentionally in nature. I would argue that it means spending time intentionally in silence so that you might hear from God and then learn more and more what it means to live with him, not to just impress him when he's looking, but to live in a steady and faithful relationship with him. And some of you, especially like if you have spent a lot of time in church, you're like, that's challenging. I don't do that. But like, 
I hear you and I am challenged. I can do that or I can work on that. But that's not the only job to steadily and faithfully love God. The other job, of course, is to steadily and faithfully love our neighbors. And I would argue that in some ways is harder. How do we love neighbors? We love our neighbors by caring about them and meeting their needs and being their friends. How do you do that steadily? I think it would mean actually working to know them, right? Actually working to meet their real needs, not just the need that they have in the moment. You know, like, again, Claire mentioned this earlier, and I am absolutely with you. Like, we need to get water to Jackson, Mississippi, so that people, like, can have water. That's an immediate need that people need, that Christians in particular need to lead the way in meeting. But any, we've been through this before, haven't we? Like, we have done disaster relief, like, a million times. And what does everybody always say? Not just disaster, but all kinds of tragedies in our country. When there's a shooting, all these things that happen where the church and volunteers step in for two weeks, right? And then they're out, they're gone. And everybody that's ever been through one of those crises says the same thing. They say like, I need somebody who's here two weeks from now, not just this moment. And that is a moment that the church is blowing because we should be the people who are figuring out how to be there two weeks from now, three weeks from now, a year from now. That's our calling. That's what it means to faithfully and steadily love a neighbor, not just to meet the need, but to pursue the relationship. A while back, I told you guys about, um, I told you guys about a meeting that I was in with the chief of police here in Annapolis. And we're, actually, there's another thing coming up this week that I'm super excited about where I'll get to hang out with him again. Um, but in this meeting, he was talking with pastors about, um, about what he and his officers might learn from us about building trust in our community. And I remember asking him at that meeting like a, what I felt like was a direct question, but I think it read as kind of a stupid question, which is a problem I have sometimes when I try to ask direct questions. But I just asked him, do your officers love people in Annapolis? Do they love them? And he said, he was really honest, and he said, like, I'm not really sure, and I don't really think so. <laughs> He said, most of them commute in. They don't really live here. They're commuting in from outside and they really only interact with people who are causing trouble on a daily basis. And so like, yeah, there's like a certain hostility between them and the, and the people. And, and I was like, well, there's like, I don't know what else other, I mean, you're asking a pastor for advice. If you wanted to ask for like legal advice or something, you should talk to somebody else. But like if you're asking me and other pastors for advice, the only advice we're gonna give you is like, that's the thing that has to change. Like if you want trust, between your department and the people of the city, they have to know that you care about them beyond showing up when there's a crisis. So what are you doing to make that happen? To invest steadily and faithfully in a relationship and not just incidentally or like in the moment of panic. So the challenge I think that this parable, the good challenge that this parable can give us is to never stop doing all of that stuff. Love God, love your neighbors, and wait on the master to return. If he comes back and he sees you at work, then he's going to do a cool thing. He's going to serve you in the same way that you've served others. And that is a sermon, right? Like, we could just call it right here. Except I teased you with that Tale of Two Cities thing earlier, and you know it's important because of how much I hate Dickens. I wouldn't have done it <laughs> if I didn't have it going somewhere. So where is that going? Well, it's going here. I think we have to start by asking, like, is that possible? Like, it sounds good on a Sunday to be like, love God, love my neighbors, never stop, be faithful, be ready in the middle of the night for the master to come. Are you going to do it? 
I'm not. Because it's not possible to do in the way that I'm telling you to do it. Can we really commit to being loving 24-7? Notice when the master here might show up at the end, right? He's, he might show up, it says, in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. To meet his expectations, like, when are the servants sleeping? Do they just not? I guess they don't. So what in the world do we do with this part of the parable? Which is, this is a standard that's being set up that you cannot meet. You can't. Well, friends, that's the worst of times, part of the, the story. And just as with the Dickens thing, the answer is going to come through juxtaposition, I think. Because it's not a parable that I want us to look at now. It's actually, I want to look at the verses that immediately precede the parable we just read. And so we're going to back up a little in Luke 12 to this. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus talking to the same people. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So what do we see here? Well, I think we see this very different picture of a God who is always attentive 24-7, who's always present and even more than that, a God who is already planning to meet all of your needs. I think the only response to a God like that one, as Jesus tells his disciples here, is to not worry. We use these verses all the time to communicate that to ourselves and to others, right? Like, don't worry. So if we trust God and take, to take care of us, like with the same openness, right, that the, the, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field have, so what God asks for from us is what he is already doing, which makes this side of the juxtaposition like the best of times in the Dickens quote. Here, God's got it. He's loving you and loving your neighbors perfectly. So how do we square this? And what's Jesus up to in putting them together? What happens when the best of times and the worst of times are sandwiched together? How do we square this task that we've been given to somehow be ever watchful with this reminder, on the other hand, to be ever restful and hopeful? Are we supposed to worry about the return of our master so much that we don't sleep? Or are we supposed to stay all awake, stay awake like all night? Or, or are we supposed to do none of those things? Do we do what animals do, right? And just like the flowers do and just get rest whenever we feel like it? Like, which is it? How can it possibly be both things, ever watchfulness and ever restfulness? And I think the answer, the path to the answer at least, comes through the story that is yet to unfold with Jesus' audience here, who are his disciples. Because what Jesus warns them about here, if you remember the whole of the Jesus story, is precisely the thing that ends up happening in just a few short weeks from when he tells the story to them. And they're not going to be ready in the moment when he challenges them to stay awake and watchful for him. 
there are two moments to consider that I think help answer the riddle. The first is on the night that Jesus is arrested. After eating together, Jesus takes this group of his disciples to a garden to pray. You might remember this story. And he explicitly asks them to stay awake with him and to wait for him. It's the same thing. It's literally the same scenario as the parable. Well, I guess he's not at a wedding, but you get it. I shouldn't have said literally. He wants them to be ready when he returns. But three times in that story, the disciples fall asleep on him. Three times he comes back and they're not doing the job that they've been given. Time to cut their lives into pieces, right? Like it's the step. But the second moment comes after Jesus is crucified and then is resurrected from the grave. So this moment is, I would argue, even more like the parable than the other one because now Jesus truly is returning from someplace far away at a time that they could not predict. They think he is dead. And again, he finds them unready for him when he shows up. Most of his followers, as a matter of fact, have scattered. They're not around at all. They're fearing for their own lives. And those who remain have already largely disbelieved Mary, who came around and told them that he had returned. And in fact, at the moment when he finds them, they have locked the door against him or anyone else. So what then does Jesus do in that story? If Jesus is the boss, if he is the master, does he do as the master in the parable does? Does he cut them into pieces and cast them out with the unbelievers as he has said? No. No, he doesn't. In John's gospel, the moment is described like this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. When Jesus returns, what does he do for those who have let him down? He brings them peace and he gives them a gift. Even when his servants fail to serve him, he does the very thing which had been reserved in the parable for people who were faithful. He comes in servants' clothes and he ministers to them. He raises them up, not only as like fellow, like he's not just the equality that we saw in the parable. In the story, he raises them up as co-heirs with him. But not only is that, in the story, he raises them up as fellow workers with him, saying, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So I want to argue, like, here's the resolution that we find in this juxtaposition of the work that we are called to do and the peace that we are invited to experience. The resolution is grace. It's grace. It is the experience of God's gifts to us. The experience of his attention towards us and his forgiveness of us when we do what people do and his invitation, even in the midst of those failures, to join him in the work that he is pursuing. That gift, that gift is grace. So how can you find 
that this morning or this week or this year? How can you like feel and experience that grace? Well, first, I think you can hear the call that we started this whole thing off with. You can hear and be, I'm not trying to challenge you to not be challenged by that parable. You can hear the call to be faithful and steady, to love God and love your neighbors. You need to hear it. It's good to hear it. And to do that, not in the big showy ways that are designed to impress the boss that you're afraid of, but in the quiet ways, which require more boldness because they require you to trust that the master is going to see it. That he's going to see even that small and steady work. So be challenged. Don't run from that. Second, though, rest in the attention of God. Rest in the attention of God. God is not far away. You're not waiting on his return. He is near and he knows what you need. So look for the faithfulness and the providence of God in your life as you are already experiencing it. And then third, accept the grace of God, even when you fail to do the thing that you know you're supposed to be doing. Perhaps we experience this tension between what we've been called to do and what we can do, specifically because that tension is what we need to experience in order to actually be able to accept this gift God's trying to give us. And if we didn't have these moments of wondering, like, am I letting him down? Then we wouldn't be able to understand how much it means for his answer to lovingly be no, no. Don't turn away from the gift God is trying to give you, either because you're ashamed of the ways that you have missed the mark with him, or because you're more like I generally am, and you're like constantly trying to earn it. It's just handed out to you. And you're like, I'll get to you once I've proven that, it, that I can, that I have earned this. Don't do it. Just accept it. What if, and this is like the mind-blowing thing that we can close with, right? Like, what if it is actually true that God just loves you? That he loves you. What if it is actually true that the God of the universe wants to serve you already? What if that same God who loves you, who wants to serve you, really is going a step even further that and inviting you, you of all people, to join him in the good work that he's doing. And what would your faith be like? What would it mean to live with that faith if it was rooted in those beliefs? That a God sees you, loves you, wants to serve you, and is inviting you to work with him. I'll pray for us and then we'll receive communion today.